that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and as a podcast available at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, I discuss the birth of British Columbia's labor movement from an urban perspective. And we're talking with historian and Victoria City Councillor Ben Isaac as we recognize Labor Day um, this past September 3rd. We'll discuss the radical history of labor activism in Vancouver and Victoria, today's challenges facing the working class and organized labor, as well as major civic issues in Victoria from the perspective of one of the city's most progressive city councillors. This is the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? 
And you're tuned here into the city here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and as a podcast as well, uh, thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. And on the program, we're recognizing uh, Labor Day and more than that, um, the laboring um, British Columbia and the history of that uh, working, those working class struggles. Um, and looking back at uh, the uh, history of labor unionism and labor activism and uh, often the radical um, uh uh, strands of of labor unionism in the province, and looking specifically at Vancouver and Victoria. And um, I caught up with um, Ben Isaac, and he is a historian and legal scholar. He's also a Victoria City Councillor. He's the author of several books and many articles, including Militant Minority, British Columbia Workers, and the Rise of the New Left, 1948 to 1972, and Searching for Workers' Solidarity, The One Big Union, and Victoria General Strike of 1919, as well as the Hospital Employees Employees Union Strike and the Privatization of Medicare in British Columbia. And uh, Ben and I are going to be chatting at length um, over the next hour about... um, the history of the labor movement and uh, uh, trade unionism in British Columbia and uh, also reflecting on uh, the current state of affairs and where we are today and uh, where we're likely to be going um, as well. And then in the final part of uh, the program, I talk with Ben about some current issues um, uh, in Victoria as someone who's coming from a progressive um, uh, perspective and of a progressive persuasion politically and how he brings that to City Hall in Victoria. And we're going to go right into it. This is part one with Ben Isaac. Ben, you've written extensively on uh, labor history and uh, union activism in BC um, and beyond. Can you talk about the rise and the birth of uh, the labor movement and labor activism in British Columbia with a particular emphasis on uh, on Vancouver and Victoria? Sure, yeah. The um, Well, the first forms of labor in British Columbia uh, were indigenous labor in the pre-contact period, and uh, trade unionism uh, wasn't an indigenous tradition. It's a European tradition. So the first unions didn't emerge um, until uh, after, as colonization was unfolding and shortly after the formation of the province of BC in the 1870s. And the first unions were unions of coal miners and railroad workers and the, worker, the unions of different uh, tradespeople in this city, so carpenters and electrical workers and pipe fitters and painters and that kind of thing. And so the early labor movement, on the one hand, was rooted in the craft unions, and these were unions headquartered in the United States that represented, this, I guess, the fairly narrow interests of specific uh, trades people. Uh, but on the other hand, you had industrial unions that represented workers in entire industries, whether uh, workers in mining, whether they worked at the pithead or down in the mine shaft, uh, or worker, railroad workers, uh, regardless of what role they may have played uh, in the construction of the major railroads that connected the province to the rest of the continent. And so early on, there was a tension, I guess, between the industrial unions, which are often very militant and often uh, led by socialists, and the more conservative craft unions, that, uh, where I guess the leadership often came from fairly conservative elements of the American labor movement, often headquartered in uh, cities in the eastern United States. And, but 
that was a phenomenon not only in BC but across Canada. What made BC somewhat distinct uh, was the strength of the militant and radical labor tradition uh, in unions like the Western unions like the Western Federation of Miners and the United Mine Workers, and uh, later the Industrial uh, Workers of the World, the IWW. And by the time of the First World War, the One Big Union, which was a union that was explicitly socialist, it called for an end to the capitalist system, and it called for production for use rather than profit, and it sought to organize all workers into a single union that could act in solidarity uh, by basically paralyzing production in every industry to support workers in a single sector, and in the process, uh, bring to birth a different kind of society uh, where the interests of workers would be paramount rather than the interests of the elite. So that was, there was a lot of debate in the early labor movement, but also a lot of strength over time. And it took a long time for labor to kind of find its feet. And partially, I guess, this had to do with, with politics as labor's political muscle increased, it began to win uh, legislation, specifically provincial laws, that made a, a more conducive climate for forming unions and bargaining collectively and going on strike. And it wasn't really until the Second World War that workers in Victoria and Vancouver and other cities uh, had a, the right to form unions without facing the threat of violence by the military or the provincial police or other state entities. And that that doesn't mean that everything was, uh, was all and well after the, the Second World War, um, but it means there, there was a different climate where, at least on paper, uh, the right to bargain collectively was to be respected, and there was on paper a clear procedure for workers to organize uh, and then freely negotiate their terms of work. So that was, I guess, kind of the beginning of the heyday uh, of, uh, of the labor movement and collective bargaining, the, the decades in the 1950s and 60s and until the 70s, uh, which has been described as kind of the long boom of North American capitalism, when there was enough wealth being produced on this continent as kind of the other parts of the world, whether Asia or Europe, rebuilt after being bombed out in the war, that basically North American industry reached its strongest point in world history, and the economic growth that was occurring at the time was on such a scale that it could support a level of security and prosperity, even for the working class, which had never been seen in the world. So for the first time ever and anywhere, uh, a majority of the population approached the good life with things like uh, weekends and holidays with pay uh, and uh, fairly expensive benefit provisions uh, for health and safety. Um, and insurance policies provided by the state um, for sickness or unemployment uh, or old age. And so that welfare state, as it was called, or that social wage which the state provided to workers was never complete, and it was never as extensive in North America as it was in some European jurisdictions, for example, in Scandinavia. Uh, but it was a, a very clear difference in what it had been like to be a working-class person. Uh, at any other point in time. But what we've seen for the last couple of decades is a concerted attack on that limited social wage that labor had succeeded in winning uh, after the Second World War. And we're still in that phase where the rights and entitlements of working people are under attack. And this includes 
the basic right to organize and into a union and to collectively bargain the terms of work and to withdraw one's labor if necessary um, as a part of that bargaining process. Before we get into uh, the modern day context, can we talk about the right to organize and the right to strike and specifically uh, 1918, 1919 uh, in Vancouver, Victoria and Winnipeg across Canada? Um, can you uh, tell us what went on in a number of these cities? Sure. So that was, I guess, a phase when the working class was in some ways in the most desperate situation it had been in, and also, I guess, most open to very radical and far-reaching alternatives, and most open to very unorthodox forms of labor organization. And so the context for that industrial crisis of 1918-1919 was the First World War and the massive carnage on the battlefields of Europe where 66,000 Canadians were killed, uh, half a million Canadians were injured. These were working-class people, young men in their late teens and 20s, who would otherwise have been filling the ranks of the industrial labor force, but instead they were shipped off to Europe. And from the standpoint of a sizable section of the labor movement, they were being shipped off as cannon fodder to serve the interests not of workers, but the interests of the bourgeoisie as the socialists described the ruling class. And so in this context of huge of death and slaughter and maiming uh, on, the, on the front in the war, and also hardship at home with shortages of basic necessities of life like butter and bacon and heating oil and other things that working class families relied upon, and also very strict censorship at home of working class organizations and political speech that the government may not have agreed with and anti-war organizing. So in that context of death overseas and economic hardship at home and political repression at home, the working class in B.C. turned to embrace radical and militant industrial unionism. And many workers abandoned the conservative craft unions that I referred to earlier and embraced this untested model of industrial unionism that was called the One Big Union. And that union was formed in the spring of 1919. So at the very moment that uh, soldiers were returning home from Europe, uh, unemployment was rising because production has, had ceased or was winding down in war in- industries. Uh, and there was a huge uh, glut of workers that arrived on the labor force because a big section of the working class had been removed from the productive uh, labor force to fight overseas. Well, as the soldiers came home, there was a real feeling of insecurity that workers had sacrificed their lives and they were coming home to joblessness with no pensions, with no way to support their families, with a lack of access to education or land um, or the basically lack of access to the good things of, in life. And so in that context, there was a convention that took place in Calgary. It was actually ironic. It was a convention of the BC Federation of Labor, but it convened in Calgary to coincide with a convention of, uh, of labor delegates from across the western provinces. And at the BC Federation convention, uh, the delegates voted to form one big union. And the initiative for that referendum came from the Vancouver Labor Council and a group of socialists who were in the leadership of that council. Uh, the next day after the BC Federation of Labor Convention had adjourned, this western labor conference convened and about 230 delegates affirmed the action taken by the BC Convention and voted to form this one big union. 
and the delegates sent greetings to the Bolshevik Party in Germany and to the Spartacists, the revolutionaries in, in uh, Germany, and the Bolsheviks in Russia, and they voted, as I mentioned earlier, for a system of production for use rather than for profit and for an end to the wages system. And they voted to hold referenda in every workplace in Canada uh, to ask workers whether they wanted to break their affiliation from their existing unions and form uh, and join this radical one big union. And it was in that context that a smallest a strike of uh, metal workers and building trades workers in Winnipeg escalated into the biggest industrial crisis Canada had ever seen because this principle of one big union, that an injury to one was an injury to all, was being actively discussed in virtually every workplace in the country. And so when the Winnipeg building trains and metal trade workers walked out, they had received a sympathetic hearing from workers not only in Winnipeg, 30,000 of whom walked out, but also workers from Victoria, B.C., to Vancouver, to Prince Rupert, and all the way across the country to Amherst and Nova Scotia. And general strikes paralyzed production in all of those cities. Some lasted for six weeks, for example, in Vancouver. Uh, in other cities like Victoria, they only lasted for a handful of days. And the duration and the intensity of the strikes often depended on the composition of the leadership in each city, uh, whether conservative craft units unionists continued to hold sway, or whether the radicals had ended up in the saddle in control of the local labor council. And so in response to this industrial challenge, the state responded with a very firm hand and uh, passed, there was a number of responses. Uh, the size of the Canadian militia was doubled from 5,000 to 10,000 troops. And Parliament um, and the government of the day rushed through changes to the Immigration Act and to the Criminal Code that allowed uh, for radicals to be deported without trial and also extended the, the laws against seditious conspiracy. And uh, some of those changes took place essentially in an hour, that all three readings and assent were given in Parliament and the Senate in an hour for one of those legislative changes, that, which I think showed the sense of crisis uh, that government and the elite felt they were uh, experiencing at the time. And in Winnipeg, which is the epicenter of the unrest, uh, the army was deployed to occupy what was then Canada's third largest city, um, they charged through horseback down the main street of the city through a, a, a protest by war veterans who were protesting the arrest of the leaders of the strike, and they shot about 50 workers, and two of those workers were killed. And this show of military force, as Canada's third largest city fell under military occupation, basically broke the back of the Winnipeg strike. And over the next two weeks... Uh, the sympathy strikes in all of the other Canadian cities, including Victoria and Vancouver, came to an end. And on the surface, I guess it looked like a huge defeat for labor. And it certainly was a defeat for the one big union, which essentially ended up being stillborn, and it never uh, grew beyond those origins uh, in 1919. But on, in another sense, labor had learned an important lesson out of the strikes of 1919, and that was that it wasn't enough to strike at the workplace, but that they had to strike at the ballot box and that they had to organize politically to elect working-class people to Parliament who would write laws and undertake actions that were favorable to workers rather than use the power of the state to smash the working class, as they had done in Winnipeg and elsewhere. So that, I guess, would be a big picture, a very rapid overview of the crisis of 1919. 
Now, if we bring it up into, uh, I guess, moving uh, over um, half a century, um, we bring, we come into the 1980s, the 1990s, and we see um, the struggle for uh, living wages. We see uh, what has been termed, you know, the the great U-turn um, in the heyday and the big uh, boom of, of North American or uh, Western capitalist economies. And we see a lot of uh, defeats and um, challenges to labor activism and, and unionism. Where are we today? And um, from your perspective, Ben, um, what are the, the primary challenges that um, working class people face and, uh, and labor unions face? Yeah, I guess uh, the on a basic level, it's a crisis of organization and a crisis of leadership. That, like during that long boom of North American capitalism, labor was brought in kind of as a junior partner in the economy, and this caused a real atrophy within labor's ranks. And the labor laws that emerged after World War II were written in such a way as to put a damper on radicalism and on militancy, but even a damper just on working-class self-activity and kind of the rank-and-file connective tissue or muscle that had made unions strong and had turned them into uh, fighting organizations that were capable of winning so many games at the end of the war. And so even things like the dues checkoff, which on the one hand gave unions financial security, um, that by requiring the employer to deduct union dues and deposit those in the employer's bank account, it, or in the union's bank account, it gave unions a stable bank account, which meant they could have professional staff and research and lawyers and that kind of thing. But on the one hand, it weakened the organizational fiber of the unions, that instead of having to have a very extensive network of shop stewards who would make the rounds in every workplace on every payday to connect to collect uh, the dues, the, the unions were now off the hook, and they no longer had to have that direct face-to-face frequent uh, relationship with every union member. And the laws um, took a number of steps. For example, they banned sympathetic strikes. So they said that workers could not go on strike to support workers in another industry. And there was a clause that had to be in every post-war collective agreement, which stated that uh, workers could not go on strike during the life of a collective agreement. So if there was a, a contract in place at a workplace, it was illegal to go on strike. And so that, again, had a damper on solidarity and connections within and between workers in different workplaces. And so as a result of this sort of process of being a junior partner in the economy and having an official role in labor relations, unions were transformed from these fighting organizations into bureaucracies that uh, had to institutionally by the government there were very sharp limits placed on what they could do and it also had an impact internally on how union officials uh, viewed their roles on the roles that different union leaders thought they should play and rather than be a source of militancy and rather than kind of inspiring a fighting spirit among rank-and-file workers, union leaders came more and more to, in some ways, act as policemen and policewomen within the workplace to control um, elements of uh, working-class dissent that may bubble up or bubble over from time to time. And so that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in today. Um, with, and at the same time, there is a lot of diversity within the labor movement. Uh, but generally, you'll find that union leaders are often very cautious 
whether to go on strike, even for specific issues to their own workplace, but certainly in terms of supporting workers in other sectors, uh, and very cautious even in terms of developing the direct connection with members that's necessary uh, to win victories in a very hostile economic and political climate. And so I think the challenge today is very similar to that challenge that Labour's faced throughout its history, which is that it needs to, I think, uh, basically organize, build the connective tissue and face-to-face connections between every worker, uh, tie issues in the workplace to a much broader vision that labor is entitled to all that it produces, that labor and workers should have a say in the management of industries uh, in which they're employed, and that all of these economic demands have to be tied to a larger political vision, to a different type of society uh, where workers will... I guess, have access and be entitled to the good things in life. And um, that's no small order, but I think there are elements, uh, there's reason for hope. I think we have a lot of very progressive labor leaders in D.C., even labor leaders at the helm uh, of, of large organizations, from provincial unions to labor councils. So I think we have the seeds to rebuild a strong and militant and radical labor movement, but that's going to take some heavy lifting all the way from the grassroots and individual union members all the way up to their leaders and a process of pushing the leaders, I think, and also progressive leaders helping to educate uh, their rank and file and to lead by example uh, to show that it's possible to hold power and even to act responsibly, but that doesn't have to mean selling out your membership and simply rolling over and accepting defeat at the hands of employers or the state. Ben, I'd like you to ask you to reflect on the the significance of um, the the turn to um, managerial or professional occupations and uh, a service uh, sector driven economy, and um, perhaps the challenge that it poses to traditional forms of organizing and the success of labor movements um, who were organizing. Um, in industrial workplaces and uh, what we would call today blue-collar types of jobs. Does that pose a significant challenge, and is that something that we can see playing out in Vancouver and Victoria and other uh, large, uh, fairly large uh, cities which have seen um, the loss of of manufacturing and industrial jobs? Yeah, well, in... um, Yeah, I guess it does, because in... uh the model of, of uh, labor relations that we have in Canada is fairly decentralized, and it's based on uh, the employ- employers and employees in a single workplace hammering out an agreement. And we have elements of what you'd call sectoral bargaining, but really at its root, and as the provincial laws are structured, it's an agreement reached in a single workplace, even if those workplaces are aggregated into provincial sectors. And so that model was certainly conducive to, if we were to go back to the 30s or 40s, organizing all of the workers in a single shipyard plant on Burrard Inlet, or all of the workers in an aircraft plant in Richmond during the war, or even all of the workers uh, in, a, in the logging sector on the coast, uh, or all of the workers in the fishing sector. And these, now those that we shouldn't underestimate how hard that organizing was. And the success of those organizing efforts, I think, gives inspiration 
for organizing more decentralized workplaces today. But the fact is, when it was organizing all the fishermen against BC Packers or all the fish, all the, the loggers against McMillan Bloedel, that was an easier task than having to organize in a small restaurant or coffee shop uh, or a small office or a small printing plant. So certainly the decentralization of the economy and the shift to the service sector has imposed barriers. The one area where we see growth and strength uh, traditionally in the last 30 or 40 years has been the public sector. And again, that has the common characteristic, characteristic of a single uh, employer uh, with very large groups of employees, whether 50,000 teachers working under the provincial government or 40,000 nurses. So, And those, those have parallels to the industrial workplaces of the past. So I think it poses a challenge. Um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't really let labor off the hook. And there's different ways to respond. You could respond politically and have the state implement a form of sectoral bargaining where large labor federations could negotiate to raise the floor and set basically a much more robust uh, minimum wage and a much more robust benefit package for workers in the service sector. And that's, in the past, that's the, the route that Australia pursued, where different classes of employee uh, would have basically protections provided uh, in these sectoral agreements that were negotiated. Um, and they were much, much better conditions than what we would have right now under our Employment Standards Act and the minimum wage laws. Um, so there's different ways to pursue that, and I know these discussions are going on, and we see elements of, I think, very uh, innovative organizing taking place, for example, with hotel and restaurant workers, um, with uh, unions uh, like the service uh, SEIU, the service and workers the service and international employees union, um, and different uh, unions in that sector. There, there's the film Bread and Roses, which kind of gives a, a glimpse into the challenges, but also the opportunities of organizing vulnerable service sector workers. So I think it's, it's definitely more complex than it would have been to have to gone in and organized a, sim, a, a single industrial plant with 4,000 workers in a pulp mill in the past. Uh, but we shouldn't underestimate how hard it was, even in the past, to go nose-to-nose -nose against extremely powerful employers. Right now, we're witnessing uh, an attack on organized labor on multiple fronts from the federal government under uh, Stephen Harper, um, forcing CP workers back to work, Air Canada um, back to work, workers back to work, um, and provincially um, the BC Liberals um, with uh, the British Columbia uh, Teachers Federation. And um, you've written on the 2004 Hospital Employees Union strike, um, which was uh, deemed illegal. Um, can I have you reflect on uh, where we're at um, in terms of the response from uh, neoliberally um, oriented uh, governments, um, both uh, federally, provincially, and then uh, lastly, if I could ask you also to talk about um, how you bring um, your progressive um, beliefs in, in uh, uh, unionism uh, to uh, City Hall in Victoria. Oh, yeah, a bunch of issues there. But I guess <laughs> the current situation, uh, I guess the idea of solidarity is really the key, that that's what we saw when with the hospital workers' strike, uh, with the teachers' strike of 2005, it was when internally 
the membership and the, the leadership had reached a fairly broad consensus that they, the conditions were too grim and that a fight was necessary, even a fight that may run up against the provincial labor laws. And so a willingness to strike illegally if necessary, uh, and that fits into the very long tradition where in the past every labor strike was illegal. So I don't think it's wise for unions to base their actions on what the government or the parliament of the day may happen to say. Certainly there may be consequences for striking illegally against the laws that exist at any point in time, but that's an action I think that Labour's realized it has to take if it's going to move forward uh, in the face of considerable opposition. And so both with the HU and the teachers, they struck illegally. They received very wide support from the general public, which sympathized with their demand and which shared a contempt for the Liberal government of the day. And the sympathy ran so far that other unions, in particular CUPE, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, was prepared to defy all of their collective agreements and walk out in sympathy with those unions and move the province to the brink of general strikes, both in, in 04 and 05, uh, and even some elements last year where there was sympathetic action by BCGEU in sympathy with the Teachers' Federation. And so I think that certainly points uh, to a towards an effective response to neoliberalism, to continue, I think, to build solidarity within and between different unions um, to stand up to the government if necessary, to defy labor laws if necessary, because I think that idea that an injury to one is an injury to all, and that action is the only sort of antidote to oppression, that's a lesson that we all have to learn. And I think uh, I'm not so sure how far the struggle this week is going to go. Uh, if I had to be a pundit or an analyst, I think we, could, we may see a strike of fairly brief duration. I know now they're talking about a single day, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a settlement was reached uh, after the, tomorrow's strike in the case of the, the provincial government workers. Um, but do you, do I you, think... Yeah. Um, I was going to ask oh, you, what, do, do you think in, in the case uh, bringing up the the action, uh, the day-long day strike for September 5th um, with the BCGEU and the Professional Employees Association and uh, Canadian Office and Professional Employees Union, three, local 378. Is that, is that one-day strike really enough? And in, in talking about the militancy of um, earlier labor unionism, um, are, are we going to see unions getting things done um, with such a limited amount of, uh, of labor action? Well, I think it's certainly better than the unions sitting on their hands. And I think it is important that the, the leadership moves with the membership and that you, you certainly don't want to lead from behind, which is a problem with many unions from time to time, but you do have to be cautious about leading from too far ahead. Um, we have to, I think, deal with the working class where it is today rather than we, where we think it ought to be. And I have many friends who are radical. I have many radical inclinations myself, but I try to take a realistic assessment. Uh, what I've heard on the street is certainly support for the government workers, but I also heard from many union members who uh, are reluctant or in some cases even hostile to the proposed job action. So I think in terms of dealing with the working class as it is today in BC, uh, it seems a reasonable action to take. I don't think the union leaders should close their minds to the need for further action or more sustained action. But I think 
what we saw in the teacher strike it was obviously hardly a victory, but I think we saw union leadership and a membership that was fairly dynamic and creative. It was hugely disruptive for students and parents and the school system, obviously hugely disruptive for teachers themselves, but they waged a dispute of a fairly long duration, uh, and the work stoppage itself was only a component of that. I think it was an essential component, but there's ways to withdraw labor without having to go into an apocalyptic um, sort of singular strike, which can have very negative con consequences for workers. So when you launch a strike, you're asking workers to, to lose their pay for the day. There's certainly economic arguments that in the long run, by waging a successful strike, they'll receive that payback many times over through a better collective agreement. But still, it is something for, for workers who, many of whom are living paycheck to paycheck, it's, there are consequences to withdrawing labor. And strike pay um, only goes a small distance in covering the gap of the lost wages. So I think... I think at this time, it's, it's important, I think, to have militants and radicals in the province pushing uh, labor further, uh, but I think we also have to realize that labor leaders are in a, a very difficult place, and they have to, there's a number of considerations they have to bring to bear. For every radical who says, let's go out indefinitely until this government resigns, I would hazard a guess that you would actually have more members saying, I have to make my mortgage payment. Why are you making me go on strike? And so I think education is the key to building a consensus within a membership that job action is the only course of action. And I think the teachers uh, demonstrated that very clearly, that they brought along teachers who were political neophytes and weren't sort of in tune with all the debates that had been happening in labor for the last hundred years, but they understood that to improve conditions in the classroom and to improve their working conditions, uh, they had to withdraw their labor. So it's a process that I think that can't be implemented overnight.
This year on This Fringy Life, life at the Vancouver International Fringe Festival is... Spacey. Lonely. Sexy. Untruthful. Mind-bending. And over the edge. Each week, on August 22nd, August 29th, and September 5th, we choose two themes and bring you stories on those themes. Tune in on Wednesdays at 6.30 after the Arts Report for This Fringy Life. Brought to you by The Arts Report and distributed by CITR 101.9 Vancouver. Download the podcasts at www.citr.ca. Wear your UBC pride. The UBC Bookstore has a massive selection of official UBC and Thunderbird clothing and backpacks. 100% sweatshop free. They also have a dazzling array of accessories and giftware and proudly sell Tom's shoes. Located at the corner of East Mall and University Boulevard, UBC Bookstore, where your purchases support UBC Campus. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And you're listening to The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions here on CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver, streaming at CITR.ca, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM Burnaby, and also streaming on CJSF at CJSF.ca. And this is also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And that's also the show's website where you can find more information about the show and find an archive of past programs. And uh, we've been talking with Ben Isaac, who's a Vancouver city councillor, and he's also a a historian and legal scholar. And uh, we've been uh, talking about uh, organized labor and uh, working class uh, histories in um, British Columbia. And we're going to continue with that discussion in in, uh, this part of uh, my conversation with Ben. Uh, We talk about uh, some of the major issues Uh, facing Victoria and how he brings um, his uh, progressive and um, working class lens to a lot of the issues that he faces and that uh, more broadly speaking that uh, residents and uh, the community of Victoria face. What are some of the major issues, uh, you're a city councillor in Victoria, um, what are some of the major issues right now that you're dealing with as a councillor and um, how are you bringing that uh, voice of of labour and working people uh, to the table at City Hall? Yeah, well, it's an interesting position to be in because on some issues, by law, we're required to keep an open mind. So something even, for example, a a high-rise condominium that on the surface... Uh, people in the labor movement would think, oh, what purpose is that serving and that's going to benefit the rich rather than the poor and the working class? By law, uh, I have to keep an open mind when an issue like that comes across my desk or a developer could actually sue the city and say that the decision was tainted with bias because Councillor Isaac had already made up his mind at the outset. So on the one hand, there's that kind of thing. Uh, but on issues, uh, I guess a big one right now relating to public services, there's... Uh, at every level of government, there's this whole idea of having to tighten the belt. And I think 
the problem there is that there, there's no willingness, I think, to make the cuts where they are needed, which I think would be an executive compensation, or if we were to go to the senior levels of government, things like the military, or in our cities, things like the police, who are in the best position and most able to absorb the impact of budgetary restraint if there happens to be no appetite for higher taxes. Um, and so right here in Victoria, there's been a debate of how do we sort of keep our tax increase in the neighborhood of 3%. And it's an arbitrary figure, and it's a figure that I'm not personally um, determined to hold to come hell or high water. That came down to keeping a swimming pool open and uh, keeping a strong parks department, I would uh, maintain those in an instant uh, over cling to some arbitrary taxation figure. Um, but... Um, so what I happen to be advocating for right now is restraint in our police budget and uh, taking a stance that's probably more moderate than some of your radical listeners would like to hear, uh, just suggesting that we need a hiring, a hiring freeze within the police force and, and that we need to freeze the police budget. So not cut it this year, but freeze it at its current level and um, through attrition, so not even having to lay off any officers, simply uh, leave vacancies unfilled, and that would allow officers who are currently very well compensated for a difficult job, uh, respecting their negotiated collective agreements, um, but uh, allowing some cost savings to be realized. Because if we took that step alone, froze the police budget uh, through a hiring freeze, we would have no budget problem in the city. We wouldn't have to look at cuts to our community centers or our parks or our roads or environmental programs. Um, and uh, and we could still keep our tax increase uh, within the range of inflation, give or take a percentage point. And so, but that's a huge uphill battle. And it would be great to have the support of labor on that issue. And it might seem strange to argue for budgetary restraint, but I think given the political climate and what politicians of all stripes seem to be arguing for, I think if labor became an ally in calling for that kind of restraint, well, that could protect the public services and the jobs uh, that uh, both working class people and the broader population really value. Does that not put you at odds with the police union um, in Victoria? Yeah, well... Yeah, no, and I haven't had an opportunity <laughs> to sit down with their leadership. I have had an opportunity to sit down with the chief. Uh, he knows where I'm coming from. I speak about this frequently when we have budgeting meetings. Um, but um, it's it's walking a line, I think. It's uh, trying. That's why I'm cautious, why I'm not calling for any, any layoffs, not calling for sort of some attempt to impose austerity by rolling back salaries and benefits. So I think it's certainly... You wouldn't expect the police force to like it. Every institution wants to hold its ground and grow. It's whether a labor union or a government or a chess club or a soccer team, no one wants to see themselves shrink. Um, but I think it's a solution. Victoria has the highest per capita level of policing of any municipality in the province. We have 246 sworn officers for a population of 85,000 people. And I think... I'm personally convinced that we could shrink the size of the force through attrition to about 230 officers uh, without compromising public safety. And in the process of reducing the size of the force by that amount, our entire budget shortfall, as it's being described, uh, would, would disappear. 
for the entire city and allow us to protect and modestly improve other city services. So it's not a popular position in some sectors of the community, but I think I think it is a sound policy, and I think it is a, a good response to the, the fiscal limitations facing municipal government. And I want to finish off, Ben, with asking you... Uh uh, this is somewhat of a on a different um, uh, strand of thought, but uh, in Vancouver and uh, across cities uh, in North America, we're seeing essentially the people that build the cities, they build the condo towers, they build the homes, um, are not necessarily the people that are able to afford to live in these cities. And as a city councillor um, and as uh, somebody who has studied the labor movement extensively. How is that issue addressed um, at the city level, and can it be? It definitely can be. Uh, It's not easy to address. It's often easier to address through higher levels of government, which have stronger taxation powers. Um, But, um, and we're not talking about social housing, which I think is, or, or we're not talking about supported housing, which I think is an easier thing, but still an important thing to look at where building several thousand units in every community to support people uh, who can't support themselves and who don't participate in the workforce and don't have an income separate from what the state might provide. Um, but the issue of a broader forms of affordable housing for the, the working class in overheated housing markets like Vancouver and Victoria, I think requires a role, a, a state function. And there's a book I read from the 1970s called The Developers by James Lorimer, and it's a really interesting for a number of reasons. Anyone who's critical of land use, whether sprawl into forest land or farmland uh, or uh, high-rise condos or the profits made by different branches of the development industry, I think should read that accessible book. Um, but what it talks about, it contrasts suburban sprawl as it took place in Montreal to sort of the post-war housing around Toronto. And what Montreal did... Certainly there was a loss of arable land, which was problematic, but it did the policy of land banking, where the city itself and the province of Quebec purchased massive swaths of land. And so rather than the raw land of development being held by private interests, it was held by public entities. And what that allowed was for a huge reduction in the cost of new housing, because rather than use land as a commodity and for real estate speculation, to generate super profits, as we see here in B.C., there was very little appreciation in the land value between when it was converted from raw farmland or former industrial land into residential land. And so the numbers they gave at the time was that in uh, in 1970 dollars, in Toronto, the value of, it was about $35,000 to buy a lot for a residential home. And this was land that the developer had bought for $200 or $400 an acre. Uh, just a few years earlier, making profits, in some cases, of 3,000%. Well, in Montreal, where the public entity had bought the land, even after servicing the land with roads and sewers um, and other amenities, uh, the the cost of a lot was about $15,000, so less than half the cost of a lot in Toronto. And there was an added benefit. In Toronto, the developer that had managed to buy the farmland ran a very vertically integrated setup where it controlled the whole development process from speculating on the value, uh, the the lift in land value, to having internal contractors, so making the profits 
off of the construction process itself to making the profits off of marketing the final homes. Well, in Montreal, the province and the city had a policy of diversity um, in the construction industry. And so a single builder who might have a crew of three or four workers may build one or two or three or four homes at a time and support, uh, I guess, get a modest but fair income and the workers as well would actually be able to compete and could buy an individual lot or a handful of lots. Whereas in Toronto, those small-scale builders were often shut out entirely by these massive uh, land development corporations. And so I think we're running out of land, particularly in B.C., um, in the lower mainland of Vancouver Island, for the sprawl, for the single-family residential model of housing. But I think what we could learn from that is if former industrial sites come up, for example, along False Creek, there could have been an entirely different model. Uh, The city of Vancouver had to inject something like $400 million to bail out the Olympic Village. But with that kind of capital and the borrowing power and the very low interest rates that municipalities can access through the Municipal Finance Authority, that entire development could have been undertaken as a public project, contracting to small-scale builders and building all the types of housing along the spectrum, but cutting out the speculation entirely in the lift in land value when that land was transformed from industrial at a much lower value to the finished residential uh, multi-story product. So there could be 5,000 units, even 10,000 units of affordable working class housing on that land. Instead, uh, with the development industry remaining in the driver's seat there, we see that most of the units are going to be out of reach for working class people, particularly those working class people who uh, lack the protection of a trade union to give them a decent income to support their housing costs. So that would be just one example, the idea of land banking, that the state, I think, has to get active again. And that's something that the federal government here in Canada did when a lot of our current apartment housing stock was built, uh, either directly by the state um, or um, through different uh, tax benefits and different forms of partnership with the private sector, which limited developers' profits and uh, helped to provide for affordability. Okay, Ben, well, we've covered a bit of everything, and I really appreciate your time. It was wonderful talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. Ben Isaac, he is a legal scholar and historian, also a Vancouver, or excuse me, a Victoria city councillor, and I had the pleasure of speaking with him um, on uh, September 4th today, um, just after Labor Day, and we were doing a special edition of the city and uh, dedicating it to uh, working class struggles and histories um, within the province and focusing specifically on um, how that plays out um, in the urban context in Vancouver and Victoria. And if you want to find more about the program um, or find this program as a podcast, uh, you can visit thecityfm.org. And that wraps up this edition of the show. And uh, again, on every Tuesday from 5 to 6 p.m. live on CATR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca on Fridays at 10 a.m. And uh, if you're tuning in live on CATR, we've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m. And if you're listening on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman next at 11. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. And be sure to follow the city um, from week to week, um, day to day, 
on Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM and also find us on Facebook at uh, the city um, colon critical urban discussions and you can find um, lots of uh, additional content and uh, um, musings about the city and beyond there as well so thanks as always for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next week on Saturday September 8th join Vancouver Co-op Radio at the Wise Hall for our 100.5 FM Frequency Change Party. The Wise Hall and Lounge, located at 1882 Adenac Street, has a vintage performance hall upstairs and a cozy lounge bar downstairs. This night of live music includes performances by Murray Porter, The O'Wells, and Jasper Sloan Yip. 2012 Juno Award winner Murray Porter tells the Aboriginal side of history with a mix of country, groovy blues rhythms, and humor. The O'Wells play a unique brand of energetic indie pop. They've been known to turn an apathetic concert goer into a regular 1930 swing kid. I spent all my sunny days. Jasper Sloan Yip's indie folk stylings tell the story of an introverted, existential East Vancouver musician. His tenor vibrato, breathless whisper, and soulful guitar exercise your heart and get your legs dancing. Let wander these streets with my head in my hands. The Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM Frequency Change Party, Saturday, September 8th at the Wise Hall. For more information, please go to www.coopradio.org.